some cases, you could argue that all that matters is how cool you feel. Um, in many performance circumstances, that's probably true. But when it comes to the risk of heat-related illness, how hot you actually are is actually the most important thing. Um, so there are some things that uh, will feel as though they're working really well, but might not be giving you quite as much of a cooling stimulus as you might think. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined as always by my colleague, fellow sports dietitian and researcher, Steph Gaskell. How are things, Steph, with you? Things are good, Alan. Things are good. Um, yeah, just having fun. It's January 2021. And I'm in the lab again. Woo! Excellent. Good to see. And and not just playing with blood samples now, real people. Real people. Yep, that's yep. where the fun's at. Real people, real testing. Yep. Yep. Nice. Love it. Nice. Excellent. All right. Well, here on The Long Munch, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. These are sort of questions that people commonly debate, whether it's out on the bike, on your run, in the coffee shop with your colleagues at work that uh, are into their, their endurance sport as well. And we break these questions down and invite a guest expert in to add their perspective. All right, Steph, it's come to that time in the podcast again. It's an A episode this week, which means one thing, and that means a bit of a rant, getting something off your chest. What's bothering you this week, Steph? And I know because I've heard this one over and over and over <laughs> again from you. This one you've been sitting on for a while, so I'll let you get it off your chest. It has, and it's, you know, it was one of the reasons, like I was uh, saying to you, oh, we have to get Ollie on again, um, you know. Um, so, yeah, I just I think this time of year, obviously, um, a lot of athletes are um, competing in, in the heat, uh but and and they've kind of you know they've they've come they're either coming from a cool environment going into the heat uh or i don't know it just seems like some athletes perhaps don't fully appreciate uh that they need to do some heat adaptation training uh for the environment they're going to be competing in um, I just see a number of athletes, you know, wanting to, I guess, catch up with me again because the race that they did in wherever it be, Queensland, Cairns, um, that was 30 or 35 degrees, didn't go so well. And then when we go back and look at, okay, well, what, what have we done in terms of preparing for that environment? Um, not all of them, um, but there's definitely some people that, you know, and it, it may not be that, you know, it, it may just be that they don't actually fully appreciate or know how do I, you know, adapt to, to this particular environment? Like, what do I need to do? Um, and, you know, like, what type of lead-in do I need to, to do for this particular event? So how many days do I need to do it? What type of environment do I need to put myself in? Um, how long, like, will that effect actually last before it wears off? Uh, and and they're the types of questions, you know, I was wanting and we were wanting to get Ollie on board for just to um, help the athletes out and also for safety as well because, you know, it, it can end in um, not fantastic circumstances. So, yeah, that's um, off my chest now, Alan, and I'm, I'm feeling better. Excellent. And I think, I don't think you said it today, but I've, I know, I've heard you say this before, that there's just so many athletes out there, I don't think respect the heat. Uh, yeah. Don't respect what it can do to you uh, and what a lack of preparation will will lead to potentially. Um, and as you said, you know, often it's it's going that, that one-off trip to an environment, which can happen at any time of the year, really. And sometimes it happens, you know, going from our winter as well into a, a hot environment. You know, people go over for, you know, the Marathon de Saab or go over to Europe in July to do, you know, hot route on a bike or something like that, um, or the tap, or um, going over to Hawaii for, you know, the Ironman or something. Um, they're the sorts of times where often people get themselves into trouble because they're not prepared. Um, you know, hopefully with summer they've got a bit of a lead-in, but if they're doing uh, 
you know, coming off not much training and then go, oh, let's just go out for some epic bike ride or run or whatever, then they can still get themselves into trouble. Yeah, yeah, and fair enough that in, in terms of, you know, they see this event and it looks cool, it looks exciting and there's adventure, um, but there's still the adventure part, but why not go in and make it a bit more of a fun adventure rather than going Survival. in, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Steph, it's still summer here in Australia, still pretty hot in big chunks of the country. Um, so we thought what better than to bring back a past guest, Associate mm -hmm. Professor Ollie Jay, to have a chat in this episode 5A about the heat more broadly. So do you want to tell us a little bit about um, what Ollie's doing back on the podcast again so quickly? Yeah, I mean, Ollie's a thermal physiologist, so, you know, it makes sense to have him on, on board again. Uh, Ollie, just to refresh people's memory, I won't go into too much detail, but he's um, an associate professor in thermoreg physiology uh, at the University of Sydney. He's also the director of the thermal ergonomics lab down there. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's also involved um, and has been heavily involved with forming the heat uh, policy for the Australian Open, um, Cricket Australia policy, uh, and you'll learn also in, in this podcast um, some other exciting um, work he's involved in that will actually relate to all sports um, in in Australia and and in the world, um, hopefully. Uh, so yeah, uh, you know he's he's done so much research in this area, so it just makes sense for us to have him on on board again. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think the thing I love about Ollie is he's got like he does that hardcore sort of basic research, but he has that real practical element to it. You know, there's stuff at the Australian Open. It's not just about writing a policy. He actually he and his team go down to Melbourne every year um, and are in a control room at the courts um, implementing that heat policy like they're part of the team that decide when they close the roof on the indoor courts, um, when they suspend play on the outdoor courts, they have like little weather stations set up on the courts that they monitor um, and, you know, have all of that stuff in, in play. They, you know, those things like the ice towels, that uh, he talks about that in this episode, actually, those towels that the tennis players have around their necks uh, at the, the breaks in, in play, like that's all stuff that sort of come from the, the policy that he and his team have set up. So, uh, you know, he's done similar stuff with Cricket Australia, right from grassroots up to the professional level in terms of um, heat policies. And, um, and and as you said, there's this new one that's coming out with Sports Medicine Australia. So real practical advice around how to manage things in the heat, uh, as well as the, the, the research and the theory side of it. So yeah, fantastic to have him on. Yeah, yeah. Go, Ollie. Mm. All right. Well, I think it's uh, time we get straight into this one, Steph. So let's let's bring on the uh, the interview with Ollie. Uh, one of the areas that I'm interested in, you've been involved, I think, for a few years now with on the ground support for sporting events, particularly the Australian Tennis Open, um, where you, where you're actually there with a, with a team um, using like little weather stations on the courts and influencing the, the heat policy of when they close the roof, when they stop playing on the outside courts, and and that kind of thing. You've done some work with Cricket Australia around their heat policies, and uh, there's now a new national policy through Sports Medicine Australia. Um, now a lot of the people that might be listening to this, you know, recreational runners. Um, triathletes, cyclists, a lot of those guys won't be exercising day in, day out within a sporting framework that might be following one of these protocols, but there's probably some bits of that that's probably important for them to, to sort of be aware of. Uh, there's sort of some key take-home messages that you think are important for, for you know, recreational runners, cyclists, triathletes to sort of have a, a handle on because they're probably not going to get this, you know, except for maybe events where they're competing, but most of the time they're just training. Well, yeah, I mean, this is actually the, probably the best way to address this is probably in the context of the new heat policy that um, that we're doing for Sports Medicine Australia, myself and um, Carolyn Broderick, who's the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Tennis Australia, we're putting that together. Um, my postdoc, uh, James Smorkham as well, is, is, is contributing to that development of that, um, that heat policy. So what we're doing with that is we're trying to uh, uh, generate it to the extent that the average everyday person will be able to to use it and um, um, help inform them in a in a 
yeah. or help them manage their risk in a way which which um, will be somewhat effective. So, um, and this is going to be enabled through an online calculator that Sports Medicine Australia are, are putting together to to couple with the policy that we're putting together. And um, that will basically tell people, uh, enables them just to kind of get a sense of what level of risk in a broad sense, um, whether it's low, medium, high, or extreme. And then what we're doing is that we're providing certain recommendations associated with those that risk stratification in terms of the things they can do to mitigate that risk from the perspective of cooling, from, um, uh, from hydration, um, from breaking at play. And what we're trying to do is, is inform those recommendations based on the best scientific literature that's currently available. Because it's an online platform as well, we'll actually be able to update the recommendations based on the latest research as it emerges this year, next year, and, and for future years as well. Um, so we're trying to make sure that we can pitch that towards um, you know, the, 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 your, your average everyday person. So not just people who work or, or, or compete or exercise within certain structured sporting organizations, um, but also kind of individuals as well. And the way that we're doing it is that we, I think it's 34 or 35 different sports, is that people can pick from a drop-down menu which sport they're doing, and then they get a basically a graph that enables them to figure out what their risk is for that particular sport. Um, so that's kind of how we're trying to address that. And that's probably the the, the, the simplest way of, 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 of doing that. Yeah. And when can we expect that? <laughs> um, <laughs> ASAP. So, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's due in the next couple of days. So, um, we're, yeah, in terms of the paper version to go to SMA, and then uh, yeah. we're looking to roll that out early next next year. Uh, yeah. Probably probably from the perspective of the of the web tool that we're probably mm. looking at something like March or something like that. But um, uh, yeah, certainly certainly ready for next summer. Yeah, uh, awesome. if not the tail end of this summer. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll be sure to um, circulate the, the link for that when it's when it's mm. available, so people can yeah, check it great. out. And even if you know, we'll have obviously uh, listeners in the northern hemisphere um, that as they head into their summer, you know, May June. Um, then it might be useful for them as well. Well, yeah, that, that's a good point. So that's one thing that we're very keen to do is, of course, um, you know, um, we're based in Australia and we mm. experience a lot of heat. We've got a lot of experience, uh, a lot of um, uh, technical experience with it. So what we're trying to do is not just generate solutions for the Australian public, which is obviously our first priority, but also internationally as well. So um, uh, and we've set up this policy to try to make it so that it's transferable to to um, to pretty much anywhere as well. So yeah. hopefully we'll be successful with that. Yeah, awesome. Okay, um, now a couple of questions I had around cooling. Um, there's obviously a variety of ways that athletes can attempt to cool themselves while they are exercising. Uh, and there's been all sorts of different strategies that have been tried and tested by people over the years, you know, whether it's having you know, really cold drinks or even potentially sort of ice slushies if they're available, depending on the, the sport. You can throw water over your head. You can put um, like stockings full of ice cubes. I know they've been popular in, in road cycling over the years um, or sticking like ice cubes in your hat and letting them sort of melt over your head or around the neck, that kind of yeah. thing. Are there any of these strategies that you would sort of encourage more than others or some that you would potentially caution against using? Uh, yeah, so um, so I probably the, the first thing I'll probably comment on uh, in terms of cooling is differentiating potentially between what feels cool and what is actually cooling you. Mm. Um, now, in some cases, you could argue that all that matters is how cool you feel. Um, in many performance circumstances, that's probably true. But when it comes to the risk of heat-related illness, how hot you actually are is actually the most important thing. Um, so there are some things that uh, will feel as though they're working really well, but might not be giving you quite as much of a cooling stimulus that, as you might think. Um, so we've done some, uh, ourselves and others have done studies where we've systematically tried to assess the efficacy of different cooling strategies on how hot you actually get in the context of different sports. Um, so, for example, we've done it for tennis um, in different types of environments. So we simulated a, a U.S. Open environment. We also simulated a, um, an Australian Open environment because they're very different. One's hot and humid. The other one's extremely hot and very dry. Uh, we wanted to assess whether the different strategies um, that prevailed were different in those conditions. And what we found that was very, very effective was this ice towel 
um, uh, mm. uh, cooling strategy. It's something that if you're if it's prepared, you can apply during these very short breaks during tennis. So you know, every odd game you get an eighty second break, and then at the end of every set you get a hundred and twenty second break. And what you can do is that you can apply these these ice towels very quickly. You get a kind of a short, sharp cooling stimulus, and we actually show that that makes actually quite a substantial difference to how hot you get. Reduces your rising core temperature throughout a simulated four set match by 0.5 degrees Celsius, which is pretty substantial. Um, so we know that things like that work. Um, we, uh, Ollie, is that in a particular, sorry, the ice towel, particular area of the body that's more effective? Yeah, so we tested it just around the neck. So what you do is that you have two to three kilograms of crushed ice wrapped in a damp towel. So you have it damp. So the conduction of the, of, of the, of the heat into the, into the, into the ice is, uh, is, is, is quicker um, through yep. the damp towel. I uh, kind yep. of tape it off at the ends, but also in the middle to stop it sliding from end to end. And then you have it, you have it loose enough so you can put it all the way around your neck and have it kind of crossed over in front of you on, on your chest. Um, now that doesn't, some people think that cools the blood going to your brain. I don't think that's really happening, but what you're doing is that you're having enough conductive heat transfer um, uh, away from the, 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 the body that enables the, 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 the blood to cool to, in the whole body to, to the extent that it makes a difference to, to core temperature. We also supplement that with a, a chilled, damp towel across the, across the lap as well, and that helps with evaporative heat loss. Um, so we found that that works really, really well. Um, and that can be used in any kind of context. You know, you're talking about cycling and things like that, probably quite an effective way of doing it. But it's not to be conf confused with kind of this neck cooling. There's been some evidence about neck cooling and, 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 and performance. Um, some work done by Chris Tyler in the UK has kind of looked at that. Um, uh, but in terms of actual physical cooling, these ice towels, which are a bit more substantial than your typical neck cooling device, are really effective. Um, at uh, all these, we found them to be really effective uh, mm -hmm. at reducing the rising core temperature for a given activity. Um, the other thing that you, you, we certainly can't underestimate is the power of evaporation. That's kind of a consistent theme throughout this conversation today, I think. And one of the best ways in which you can do that is, as Alan mentioned um, just in the opening to this particular question, is that you can take water and actually dump it over yourself. And, uh, and it actually doesn't matter what the temperature of that water is. Um, it's the evaporation of that water that matters the most. Um, so is that essentially like free sweat, basically? Yeah, basically, yeah. It, and and effectively, what you're doing is that you're 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 getting the evaporation without having to physiologically to produce that sweat. Mm. So we, we've been looking at some ideas of saying, okay, well, you know, if you've got a certain amount of water. What should you do with it? Should you drink it, or should you should you douse it? Uh, drink or pour is this is the question mm. we've been asking. And um, what you can see is that the amount of heat loss that you get from the evaporation of a certain volume of water from the skin surface completely dwarfs how much heat loss you'll get from internal conduction if you drink an, a, a very cold water drink or even an ice slushy drink. Um, you only need about, I think it's 6 or 8% of the water to evaporate from the skin to give you more heat loss than it would be from ingesting a nice slurry drink. So that kind of gives wow. you an idea of how much evaporative potential there is in water that you douse. Now, one of the good ways of doing that is actually, um, it depends if it's dry already, in some cases it's already wet, but um, giving people kind of wet t-shirts to put on um, and then you get in the evaporation because that sits close to the skin and then you get the evaporation. That's a, kind of a nice way of, 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 of um, ensuring that, that, that people can get maximum heat loss. Now, one way of doing it would be if you have an athlete who is about to set off on a ride and it's a hot environment and maybe they're not sweating all that much yet, is actually to wet the, the, the shirt that they're wearing before they start then you get that evaporative heat loss right away before they have to start sweating. That could be uh, an effective way of, of, of kind of accelerating that evaporative heat loss before we physiologically kind of boost it ourselves. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a perfect segue because that was actually going to be my next question was oh, about okay. sort of the yeah. drink or pour factor. And I know yeah, certainly, yeah. and Steph, you're probably the same. I remember when I was doing my sports nutrition training, they always used to say, oh, don't pour it over your head. Like that's not hydrating mm. you. That's ridiculous. You need to drink it mm. to get the hydration. Um, but, yeah, in this sense, as you said, like that, that water is going to evaporate off. And to some extent, that's possibly going to save you some sweat and actually have mm -hmm. a hydration benefit. 
is exactly right. So it actually yeah. indirectly will will theoretically hydrate you. So this is something that we're actually looking at in a very um, kind of public health context. If you'll and if you'll let me just segue very briefly into this. So um, some of the things that we're looking for are also um, heat wave solutions for people that live in 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 developing countries where maybe there's a scarcity of of clean drinking water. So what you might have. So let's say take a, a city like Karachi in Pakistan, for example, where you know, only 10% of the water is drinkable. Uh, but the question is, that, you know, is there a proportion of that 90% of water that's not drinkable, but is it treatable or, or, or safe enough to externally apply to the skin surface? Which case, that will evaporate, it'll save you from having to sweat as much, and therefore you don't have to drink as much water. So in that kind of case, you actually are hydrating indirectly with that water without actually drinking it, but it's saving you from losing it through sweat. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, also, just um, a lot of, uh, well, the ultra runners. So um, I uh, remember just seeing Lucy Bartholomew's ultra runner and um, she did um, a hundred miler, I think it was Western States um, race. Anyway, um, what she did was had um, this this hat that actually could hold ice, I think, in the, the neck part. Yeah, a um, yeah, a little pocket in there. Um, is that like is it in terms of what you wear on your head do you, does that kind of destroy that um you know process of the evaporation like what's yeah so i'm not familiar with any data that showed that anything that you can apply to the head makes a difference to brain temperature let's let's say yeah and it's very tempting to think that oh well i cool the head uh, when it, it may happen but i'm not familiar with any data that showed that that's the case the thing is, is that you have a very high density of thermoreceptors in the scalp. So mm -hmm. if you apply a cool stimulus, it feels really cold, right? Um, yeah. That's because you've got a lot of free nerve endings that are sensitive to, to a cold stimulus that give you the sensation of coolness or cold. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you've got a lot of surface area to, to evaporate on there. If you put ice on it, um, is it going to make it? So, you know, if you've got ice in the back of that of that hat and it's going around the back of the neck, then that doesn't sound too dissimilar to the ice towels that I've been yeah. advocating. Um, yep. You don't have quite as much coverage, presumably, mm. uh, but you have a longer application if you're running with it. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's jangling around or something or how irritating that would be, but maybe you've got to pull yeah. it down a little bit. So, yeah, I, I don't know too much about that. What, what, what I would say is that, from an evaporation perspective, really what matters is the absolute amount of evaporation. And the total surface area that you have in your head is not really that much relative to the torso, let's say. Yeah. So I would imagine that, um, and again, this is speculation because we don't have data to, to, to um, yeah. uh, conclusively answer this question, but just from a theoretical perspective, if, you've, if you're getting a certain amount of water coverage on the head and you get evaporation from that, if you're going to choose between one area and another area, I would choose the torso just because you've got more surface area. Mm -hmm. If you could do both, then that, I would imagine that's not an issue. Uh, that would be, yeah. probably be optimal. Um, but it's you know when it comes down to you know to, to elite athletes as well, it's really important for them to test things and find what they're most comfortable with as well. Um, mm -hmm. That's something that obviously you know we we can't underestimate. Um, is 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 the 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 fact that they need to become familiar and comfortable with with these particular types of interventions. Yep. Uh, one thing I'll probably maybe just, um, if you don't mind, Alan, is just kind of go back to this idea of of cold water ingestion. So mm. One thing that we've found, and so we did a, a review in Sports Medicine that was published in 2018, I think, where we tried to kind of put together all the data that's available in the literature where we try to identify whether there's really any signal in the data that shows that drinking cold water or even ice slushy drinks during exercise, whether it actually makes you cooler or not. And we can't really find any evidence that shows that. Um, it, I think there's good evidence that shows that it improves performance. But if you take into if you take put those studies aside and you just look at studies that have done fixed rates of metabolic heat production, and you get people to ingest cold water or an ice slushy drink, what you see is really it doesn't make a difference to core temperature. And we think that that is mainly attributable to the fact that we, we published some studies back in 2014 and 2016 that seem to find evidence of independent thermoreceptors in the abdominal cavity somewhere that independently alter sweating 
from core temperature. So what we find is that when you drink cold water, or if you ingest an ice slushy drink, the cooling of the tissues in the abdominal cavity, which is not the core, the, the body core is a bit of a kind of um, uh, an indeterminate thing, to be honest, because what really matters is maybe brain temperature, the temperature of the deep visceral tissues um, with respect to when it comes to the risk of heat illness. Um, but in the abdominal cavity or somewhere in the area there, there's probably some free nerve endings that independently modulate sweat rate. And what we found is that people, if they drink a cold drink, you'll actually reduce your sweat rate at the skin independently of how hot you are. So if I measure your core temperature with a rectal temperature sensor and you drink a cold drink, your core temperature won't go down, but you'll stop sweating. And we think that's due to these independent thermoreceptors. So what we find, we've done a kind of a, a heat balance audit, if you will. We published that in 2012 in Active Physiologica. And we found that when you drink a cold drink from a heat balance perspective, you're actually no better off uh, with a cold drink than you are with a thermoneutral drink. And the reason for that is why you have that internal heat exchange with the cold water, which warms the water up, and that enables you to dump heat into the warming that water up a bit. You reduce your skin surface evaporation by an equivalent amount, which means that your net heat storage is the same. Yeah. So, so it's not necessarily worse, but it's just not better. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So what we advocate is, you know, if you're if you like cold water, go for it, drink it. Mm -hmm. um, but probably what matters is choose the water temperature that you're most likely to drink more of. So if we're trying to advocate hydration, then if, if you find that you drink 20 degrees Celsius faster, water faster, or you, you find it more um, appetizing than cold water, then drink the warmer water because it makes no difference whatsoever to how, to, to how hot you'll get. If it makes a difference to how hydrated you are, it might ultimately matter. So, and so you mentioned before that there may still be a performance effect of that. Mm. Is that more the perception of heat, like you feel cooler, so that allows you to perform a little bit better? Yeah, we think so. And there's lots of lots of data out there that's kind of looked at different cooling strategies that modulate how hot how hot you feel, and that makes a big difference to to or can make a difference to. Uh, ultimately your performance. The other thing I'll point out as well is that there's data that shows with pre-cooling. So if you ingest a cold water bolus or an ice slushy drink before you start sweating, then you have no reduction in sweating to balance that out. So therefore you do have a reduction in core temperature. But what we do see, seem to see is that that then will subsequently affect how quickly you start sweating, which then kind of neutralizes that benefit after about 20 minutes so um yeah you, you can only trick the body so much so um i've got so we all work with a lot of well ultra endurance athletes um particularly um i've seen actually in this month because some races have been starting to be able to happen um yeah, great. athletes that are doing like 80 to 100k races um they're they're like some of the races have been, you know, 35 degrees. They can be, you know, so hot and humid. Yeah. Um, they might start early, so at 6 a.m., but, that you know, depending on the athlete, they're running for, you know, anywhere from 8 plus to 24 hours. Um, so they're getting a range of, of um, uh, temperature conditions. Um, how... What can we do to, I guess, best educate them on how to prepare for an event like that? So um, a question is, like, um, how do they best heat adapt to that environment? Um, what would be your advice for an athlete going into that situation? I mean, I think um, heat acclimation is probably the number one thing that they can do. Mm -hmm. um, presumably most of, these, most of these athletes would do that. So... Um, some, some not. Some not. Okay, yeah. So um, I think one thing, one thing I would caution people against is assuming that they are heat acclimatized. Um, so if just to refer back to those definitions earlier on, acclimatization is when you're adapting to your natural environment, and acclimation is adapting to a, a synthetic environment within a climate chamber, for example. Mm -hmm. And the, the trouble is that what we see, um, you know, it's it's an emerging um, uh, thing in Australia. It's definitely um, prevalent in places of the United States, um, less so in Europe, but it's the use of air conditioning, right? So, um, is, is, you know, it can be very hot outside, but if we're not consistently exposing ourselves to those conditions coupled with intense exercise, then we won't develop a full heat adaptation response. 
the way I kind of, the, the analogy I've always used is, you know, if I've got my office and my office is next door to a gym, I don't have big muscles by just having, not that I have big muscles, any stretch of imagination, but I don't have that, get that from, from having my office next door to the gym. I've got to go into the gym and expose myself to the, the stimulus and lift the weights to get that adaptation. The yeah. same thing is that if we're sitting in a car or an office or a gym that is air conditioned and it's super hot outside, but I'm not exposing myself to that condition, to a, I'm not going to get that physiological adaptation. Mm-hmm. So um, we've got kind of some evidence from some studies that we've done. This was in Canada before I moved here. Is uh, and you know, contrary to most people's um, popular belief, it does get quite hot in in Canada, particularly mm-hmm. in the summer. In the summer, obviously, um, super cold in the winter. But um, uh, you know, we didn't find any evidence of physiological adaptation to the heat throughout the course of a of a summer there. Um, that study's not been done in Australia yet, and we're working on that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I wouldn't assume that you, particularly earlier in the year, that you're acclimatized. So what this means is that you should consciously, repeatedly expose yourself to hot environments in a training setting in advance mm-hmm. of competition. Mm-hmm. And doing that as much as possible because the benefits that you get from acclimation or acclimatization are really enormous from the perspective of mitigating or attenuating that, that, that thermal strain that develops attenuating the cardiovascular strain that you're under um, or enabling you simply to be able to perform better uh, for a given set of conditions. So that would probably be my number one recommendation in terms of preparing going into uh, a racing season, let's say, where you expect to encounter hot and humid conditions or hot hot environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. On, on the day, um, I think um, having a hydration plan is probably wise for these very long extreme um uh, events um and probably doing basing that on experience and data from yourself uh would be very wise i would think and then from the perspective of of cooling strategies i think you know you you'll be really hard pressed to find anything that's much better than dousing so as as as, as long as um you know you have access to excess water if there's a way in which you can get it on you as well as in you that is a really powerful way of maintaining um, maintaining your thermal status without trying to uh, get without getting into uh, dangerous territory. I think so. Those are my probably my main my main uh, off the top of my head uh, yeah. recommendations I would make. Yeah, and the only thing the other thing would be because sometimes what happens is these people they're flying over to that hot environment, so they've they've been in in a cool environment. So obviously they. Um, put themselves in those situations um, but then like what's the length of time before that adaptation would wear yeah. out yeah oh great okay well first of all I, I didn't mention how long it takes to to occur in the first place mm. so maybe i'll mention that and then talk about the decay mm. so um you know most of the heat acclimation studies will show that if you get um if you have exposure so exposure is as hot and as humid as you can make it and vigorous exercise for at least an hour preferably mm-hmm. an hour and a half in these conditions in consecutive days. Yeah. Um, if you can do, if you can do 10 consecutive days, that's perfect. You do seven, that will give you the vast majority of the adaptation. If you can't do that, then maybe five, you might get away with five, but anything less than that, you're looking at very partial acclimation responses. Okay. Um, but as yeah, so, so, so vigorous exercise in as hot as you can find, but also doing it in a safe way. So you don't want to go all out on a very, very long run in very, very hot conditions when you're not adapted at all, because you expose yourself to quite significant risk in that case. So mm. kind of titrate yourself uh, into the, into the, that, um, those conditions. Um, uh, in terms of decay, um, you know, that's a bit of an unknown quantity right now. Uh, what we know is that um, there's some data from the U.S. in the late 70s where they kind of looked at military recruits and they find that, you know, you have these adaptations that occur predominantly over the first 10 days to 14 days. And it took about 28 days for, it, for those adaptations to completely go away. Um, and we see quite a substantial reduction uh, within, within, within seven days. So what I would suggest is that and we don't really know for sure, and this is an area of, of future research that we're looking at working um, working on in collaboration with some of our overseas partners, um, is looking at, you know, what's, the, what's the, the optimal kind of, if you stop doing it for two days, do you then have to do one day to get back to where you were before? Or is it three to one ratio? We don't really know. Um, but uh, my advice would be to just try to av- avoid too many days where you're not 
exposing yourself at all to the hot stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's probably most wise. But certainly, if you know, if you go a week without without exposing yourself to that, that's probably going to be too much, and you're probably going to lose a fair bit of that um, that adaptation response. But I can't put a number on it because we don't have the data, to the best of my knowledge, anyway. At the moment. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Yep. I guess the other thing was that, um, like, commonly we hear that we shouldn't be getting our, I guess we refer to it as our core body temperature over 40 degrees Celsius. Oh, good one, yeah. Yeah. Um, And recently, you know, there was um, work published by the group, Louise Burke's group, with race walkers that are commonly getting their temp over that 40 degrees. Um, Is there advice that you've got um, that area for... um, yeah, for, for the yeah, audience. Yeah, great question. So, yeah, there's lots of data that have kind of emerged over the last few years uh, that showed that, you know, elite athletes in very hot conditions competing in in quite, sev- you know, quite severe conditions and, and, and uh, very competitive conditions um, regularly attain core temperatures far in excess of this kind of 40 degrees Celsius. It's almost like there was this, this threshold that we – that we thought that was there a few years ago where there was this kind of internal break, subconscious break. But um, yeah, there's good evidence emerged. So uh, you mentioned Louise's work, uh, Mm. Julian Perriard, uh, along with um, uh, Sebastian Racinier, they published a paper from uh, their time in Doha uh, and the the cycling championship that was published in BGSM a couple of years ago. And I think they had, uh, they found, uh, an elite cyclist with a 41.1 degree Celsius core temperature, uh, again, without any ill effect. Now, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is that with training and with regular exposure to extreme heat, there are these other adaptations that take place at the cellular level. So things that upregulation of things like um, chaperone cells, so heat shock proteins, which enable the body to, 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 or the cells of the body to really tolerate these very extreme temperatures better than they would without, without the presence of these, these adaptations. Um, so these are probably recommendations for people who are supremely trained and exposed to these conditions. You, you probably wouldn't want your average person then kind of hitting it um, and then expecting to get to a core temperature like that without any ill effect. Um, so I think it's, it's important to recognize that those observations have been made in elite athletes who are highly trained and probably very well heat acclimated. Um, but it, what it means is that th- this 40 degrees Celsius threshold is, you know, it's still a pretty good one to have in terms of saying, hey, look, you know, if you stay below 40, your risk of heat stroke is probably or, you know, really quite nasty heat related illness is, is, is probably less than it is if you exceed that, that, um, that 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 uh, that threshold, but it's it's also on a continuum as well, right? So we know that that from the data is that you have people who have really quite bad heat related illness, heat exhaustion, or even worse, with body temperatures that are maybe even below that forty degrees Celsius, because it's kind of um, associated with other factors, often to do with with um, you know the immune suppressions in the immune system, um, uh, previous heat related exposures, um, and things like that. So it's a, it is a bit of a, a continuum. The, the, the kind of guidance I always say is that, you know, if your core temperature is below 39.5, you're probably, your risk is probably relatively low. When you get it to 40, it's getting up there. When you get to 41, then your risk is quite elevated. Um, but there's lots of other factors that kind of go into it, which, um, um, you know, contribute to the overall risk of heat-related illnesses per se. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when we're trying to do the heat adaptation, like heat training, um, you know, and we say put ourselves in those hot environments, um, conditions where we're also like in a way we're wanting that body temp to get to what thirty nine degrees yeah, or so. Yeah, or? yeah. So that's yeah, that's a really interesting question. So this is idea. So the type of protocols that you'll use to heat acclimate an athlete. So um, you know, there's different ways in doing it. There's the standard traditional approach, which is called the isothermic approach, where you're going for a target core temperature. And you get them up to that target core temperature, it might be 39 or 39.5, um, and that will, will serve as your kind of target in your protocol. And then when they get there, then you t- you'd maybe downregulate the, 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 the workload that they're working at to maintain them at that. I mean, I, I, I don't know how... Um, I, I, don't, I don't know how necessary that is. 
I mean, it's, it's a quite convenient way of doing things because if you keep that 39.5, let's say, target temperature for your heat acclimation protocol, what we know is that one of the first things that changes as a function of progressive heat acclimation days is that your resting absolute core temperature goes down. So what this means is that if you're going for the same target absolute core temperature, it means that you have to basically expose them to a, a greater overload stimulus, if you will, to achieve that. that, that. So it's a nice convenient way of, of, of basically doing that progression and that overload to enable that you're, to ensure that you're exposing them to progressively increased severity of heat stress to try to get them to adapt optimally. But whether it's necessary to actually to then when you get to that 39.5 is to say, okay, well, let's now drop off the, um, the exercise intensity to maintain that temperature. I don't know how, how necessary that is. Again, if, we, if we're led by the, 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 the literature, I don't think there's anything definitive out in the literature to show that that's suboptimal, but it certainly is an area of, of, that needs f- f- further research. If you think about it from, again, if we go back to the heat balance perspective, if we know that metabolic heat production or the evaporative requirement for heat balance drives sweating requirements, then presumably maximum adaptation comes from having the, the maximum evaporative drive. So to then kind of like reduce that once you reach this core temperature maybe isn't ideal. Um, yeah. Uh, but again, it needs more work. And, you know, there's been some work that's kind of been emerging in the last two or three years, which has said, okay, well, if I dehydrate people and then acclimate them, does that give us give me a, a, an extra kind of stress that the person has to respond to? And does that give us a better adaptation? And again, I don't think, you know, I don't think we have a definitive, definitive answer to that yet. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an emerging area. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I think that's us wrapped up for the, the technical stuff. So, Steph, let's right. bring on the bonus round to take us yeah. home. All right. So, so Ollie, you've obviously, uh, you know, lived in the UK, over in Canada, as you mentioned before, and, and now here in Australia. Yeah. Is there anywhere else that you'd love to work in the future if the opportunity came up? Is there anywhere on your bucket list? Oh, my employers are listening to this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we've, we're very happy here in Australia. Um, you know, a couple of times I nearly ended up working in the US and um, didn't. Um, you know, may, maybe that might be something that happens in the future, but we, we, we will see. Um, you know, um, yeah, it's one thing I've found is so I'm, I'm uh, what am I now, almost 46 years old and uh, moving to different places gets harder and harder every time you, <laughs> as you get older. And uh, we, we've... Um, you know, it's been seven years in Sydney now, and um, it's uh, it, we're, we're we're very happy here. So uh, uh, probably here to stay, I would think. Yeah, yeah. We never know. Never say never. Never yes. say never. And you're not near the northern beaches either. No, we're not. No, we're on the uh, in Kudji, <laughs> which is the the eastern beaches, I suppose you call it. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of like, obviously, you do a lot of work with um people around exercise in your research and, and with you know, Tennis Australia, Cricket Australia and so on. But are there any sports yourself that you either participate in or, or just enjoy watching the most? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a big football, as in when I say football, association football, so soccer fan. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a big Tottenham Hotspur fan. We're not having a bad season this year, actually, even though the last couple of results haven't been too great. Um, as this has been recorded on December 22nd or whatever. We've <laughs> <laughs> gotten half the table by the time people listen to this. But... Uh, yeah, so um, you know, opportunity to work at football would be quite good. I think that's my uh, my my number thing. But uh, yeah, but been really delighted to have the opportunity to work with uh, with Tennis Australia. That's very exciting, and, uh, and and cricket as well. We've worked with the the National Rugby League as well. Um, I'm more of a rugby union fan, as opposed to a, an NRL fan. But that's been that's been a joy as well. So. Yeah. yeah, cool. Um, and do you do any any sport yourself? Uh, well, I'm a, uh, I was a, I was a goalkeeper by trade. Well, not by trade, but uh, by recreation uh, for a while. So uh, when I first moved to uh, to Sydney, I played for the Sydney Uni over 35s. Um, but uh, yeah, with uh, increasing um, life responsibilities now, uh, I've uh, hung up the gloves and uh, yeah. no longer that. But no, we're still um, still participating in a, in a fair bit of running. So um, even though, again, less so in the last eight months or so. But uh, one thing we've done as a as a lab group, we've uh, often participated in things like half marathons and the city to surf and things like that. And that's always a, 
that's always nice to uh, to get the group together and and do those runs and and um, in uh, earlier times and hopefully we'll be able to do it again soon is uh, kind of the uh, kind of celebration afterwards is always quite good fun as well so yeah, a, bit, a bit of recreational running is probably as as, uh, yeah. as good as it gets nowadays and, and do you guys like as thermal physiologists do you get all nerdy and do like all the like the cooling and all that, the nerdy stuff to prepare. It definitely shouldn't take a leaf. I've pretty run the recovery. It's not. It's not. Any stretch of imagination. Uh, but yeah. it's, good, it's good for uh, good for team morale, though. So we focus on that. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Um, do you live by any piece of advice or motto? We've had a few interesting ones through the podcast oh, so far. God, oh my God, put me on the spot here. Yeah. No, I, mean, I, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I guess um, uh, a good principle is uh, in all these things is tr try to make sure that uh, whatever you say or do, you you you'd, you'd be prepared to to to, to do it when, if the person's in the room, you know. And you kind of think about that in terms of of of, of you know um, giving constructive criticism of other people's studies or or, or, or things like that. Always try to do it in a sense that uh, you know if they were if they were with you, would you say exactly the same thing. And uh, I think that's really important, you know, because um, it's important for us all to be respectful of other people's work and um, and uh, kind of make and, and it's important for moving the field forward and or science or just generally is is it shouldn't be about egos. It shouldn't be about who's right and who's wrong. It's about being open to the truth. And that's really the that's what hopefully that's what we're all trying to do, right? We're all just yeah. trying to find out what the what is right and what is wrong and it doesn't really matter who's right and wrong it, what matters is that we get there eventually and hopefully all the work that we're all doing is just kind of working towards that that ultimate answer and um uh, you know uh, th that's probably my my number one kind of overall philosophy i don't know if that's a motto but yeah yeah no no well said and, and we had this exact discussion with with lewis james um on the previous episode obviously in hydration there's a lot of sort of very polarized opinions um yeah, uh, around around drinking during exercise so yeah no well said look both um lewis and louise you've both kind of said similar there be kind yeah um oh, yeah right. so that's good then we had sam impey and his motto was that um what was it a beer in the hand is worth two in the fridge yeah good one yeah <laughs> yeah i can to that one as well yeah um <laughs> so final question is there uh, obviously i mean probably not not in 2020 obviously but you know previously you do uh, obviously a fair bit of travel both for you know some of the sporting events like the australian open but also you know conferences and, and research bits and pieces uh and presumably going home to see family and things but is there one thing that you you just can't live without when you're traveling around the world that you have to take with <laughs> oh, this you? is such an old man response now my compression socks <laughs> <laughs> I, I, when I first, because uh, you know, whenever you fly anywhere from Australia, it's it's um it's you know it's a significant undertaking. And I guess my uh, my Venus return is not what it used to be. And uh, <laughs> one thing I found after moving here is that yeah, you have to have them. I have like three pairs packed away in different spots. Okay, so, so so yeah, it's not the most exciting. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, respond, but, uh, right, right. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of athletes, particularly runners, Steph, that, that oh, just wear them twenty four seven. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Awesome. <laughs> all right. Well, on on behalf of us both, uh, and obviously all the, the listeners, Ollie, thanks so much for that. Um, you give us a great insight both into the the sweating side of things, but also you know just um, you know managing the, the the risk and and how we best prepare and and um, and execute in in the heat as well on on whether it's training or race day. So thanks so much for your time. Oh, no, thanks for the opportunity to chat with you both. It's, um, yes, it's a real pleasure. So thank you. Thanks. Cool. Thank you. He's done it again, Steph. Ollie J comes through with the goods. Another <laughs> great episode. Uh, some great information around, um, you know, coping in the heat. And as he said, some, you know, great new resources coming through um, Sports Medicine Australia as well, which is, is fantastic mm. to see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, always love um, having Ollie on board and uh, who knows, we might get him again. Yeah, uh, yeah, possibly. Yep. yep. He could be a, a, a triple triple guest. Triple guest. Uh, yeah, mm. so just to, I guess, sum up um, some of the take-home messages from, from this podcast in terms of um, heat uh, and answering that question in terms of how do I best adapt to exercising in the heat? Um, so key take-home messages would be uh, to 
actually give yourself lead in time to uh, adapt to that particular environment that you're going into if you're not already in that type of environment. Um, and perhaps bare minimum um, would be uh, perhaps five days of, um, of putting yourself through this kind of exertional heat and or passive heat environment. Um, but I'd say five to 10 days and ideally probably 10 days if you can. Uh, in terms of duration, perhaps anywhere between 60 to 90 minutes of, um, of being in that particular environment. And, you know, it is trying to get your, that body temperature up and, and it, it may be up as, in a way, as, um, you know, at least 39 degrees or higher. Um, but again, you know, caution will caution you with that and, and make sure, you know, you're an athlete that's able to do that or you're doing that with supervision. Um, we don't want anyone going out and doing that, you know, um, by themselves and doing that in a silly manner because obviously there's um, health hazards um, with that. So just make sure you, you're doing that sensibly and under the guidance of a, um, a, a professional, ideally. Uh, and then in terms of, well, okay, so I'll do it for, you know, that certain period, um, that's great, but, you know, well, um, what, uh, how long do I need to leave that until then I'm going to this event? Like, will, how long will that um, adaptation last um, uh, until I get to that event? And um, I don't think we had a real specific answer on that, but it, 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 it probably, it, it decays. Um, but it's, it's probably not as fast as we think. Um, so, you know, I think, um, it might be, yeah, did, we didn't actually have an answer for that, did we? No. As, and I mean, I think yeah. from a practical point of view, at the end of the day, probably your itinerary is going to dictate to a large extent that anyway, just in terms of, you know, how long it takes to fly to somewhere and then transfer to mm. whatever environment. I mean, mm. I guess the main thing is that however long that takes is try and get back, you know, to that environment with, with three or four days to spare if you can. Um, yep. You know, often you can't just because of budget or availability or work or whatever. But um, if you yeah. can get there, you know, a few days ahead and then train in that environment during that time as well to sort of re or boost that acclimation a little bit more. Uh, yeah, as well exactly. As you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then in terms of probably then the next one would just be in terms of calling um, and what's uh, some of the, you know, most effective ways that we can keep ourselves cool in, in that type of environment. And I think for me, one of the main messages I got from Ollie there was um, about having, you know, ice and ice towels or, you know, again, depending on the logistics of, of your event, but around the, um, the torso, is perhaps mm. one of the most effective areas and, and neck, um, but not necessarily like a lot of people could put it over their head. Um, but the torsos, you know, that, that larger part of your body is going to be more effective. Um, and then also in terms of um, what about drinking? Because we, you know, we do hear a lot of things in terms of drinking cold um, drinks can perhaps keep us um, cooler, but there's perhaps not um a, a whole heap of you know e evidence for that as such um so and and really also ollie i think mentioned in terms of you know just any type of temperature um fluid um can be effective at keeping us cool um and just tipping that over our body as well um can be really really effective um, free sweat. keeping us yeah exactly free sweat um well said yep um any was there another message i'm missing in that no i mean i think just that the um like the the temperature of the drink as you said is probably doesn't make a huge difference to your core body temperature uh, but it may make a difference to how you feel so it's a psychological yeah, impact thermal. based on that perception of of heat Sensation. rather than reality of um, body temperature uh, and that, that that you know won't um, help you in terms of the risk of heat illness but it may help you in terms of performance um, so there may still be a benefit performance-wise from doing that. Exactly. And then just the thing that then we need to be careful about, which we already know, you know, when we looked at, we look at things like menthol is, um, you know, it could have um, positive effects in terms of making um, 
us feel like we're cooler than what we are, but we just need to be mindful um, that we are not actually that cool. Um, and, and that may be a um, health precaution for some people. Don't overcook it, basically. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Cool. No, I think that's a, a pretty good summary. The other thing that we didn't really talk about in this episode, Steph, but I know is obviously close to your heart in terms of um, you know, your area of interest in your research is the effect that heat has on the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, and that's probably a, a very under-recognised area is that, you know, heat will have an impact on the gut. Do you want to, uh, I mean, obviously we're going to do a separate episode on, on gut issues, you know, later on, but do you want to give us a quick overview of, of why the heat's a problem in terms of the gastrointestinal tract as well? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, as we know, when we're exercising, blood flow is, you know, going more so to, to your muscles and away from the gut. And then obviously when we've got the heat um, environment there, then, um, you know, we're um, sweating, etc. Um, so again, less blood flow um, to the gut. Um, and when we have less blood flow to the gut, um, we are then going to get more injury um, to, to the gut and to the lining of the gut. Um, and then when we have that happening, um, then that can, can create um, uh, an, not an ideal situation. Uh, and um, so then that's where, you know, people can experience uh, things like nausea, in those types of environments, um, they can get upset stomach, um, and it and it's just because of you know um, when we're in these environments, particularly in endurance, we know that the longer that we exercise, um, the more injury that we will get to to the gut, and the more the gut is impaired, and then we whack on the heat, um, and and that's just you know another stressor. Um, to, to the gut and um, and then we get issues there. So that's also actually why one of the reasons I wanted to have Ollie on as well is because I get athletes um, that have been coming to me lately um, and they've been complaining of, um, you know, upset upset gut and nausea. Um, but, yeah, it, it's I wanted to address one of those stresses and that exacerbator being heat. Um, so, you know, um, make sure we're... A, adapting to the to the heat um, and then and then we can also work on how we can do that in terms of the gut health yeah for sure yeah um and so to follow on from this episode we always like to then uh have an athlete or a coach um to give their sort of a bit more of a i guess a practical perspective on how they then apply this and uh the athlete we will have there would be Jess Stenson. Jess Stenson. Although a lot of people would go, who's that? And yes. when I say Jess Trengrove, they go, oh, I know who that is now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, Jess got married a wee while ago now um, and uh, she is from my beautiful hometown, uh, Adelaide, and we'll be, yeah, talking to Jess about this very topic. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to having Jess on board. Yeah, absolutely. And um, she's done a bit of work, I think, about trying to work out sweat rates and um, you know, hydration strategies for, for various events. And um, you know, obviously she's done you know, world championships and Olympics and things, which is generally as a, as a marathon runner, as she is, yeah. that's where you tend to see the sort of the hotter environments. Um, whereas, you know, you know, we talked with, with Julian about this back in, in 3B as well, who's also a marathon runner, that, you know, most of the events they do are generally in pretty cool conditions because they select the the cool. time of year for the race around that but you don't get that choice when it comes to world championships and olympics so when you go to the the big events where the big prizes are up for grabs um, you have to deal with whatever the weather throws at you yeah yeah and the big key one there being um the was the com games in gold coast for for jess um and um ev everyone will well anyone that watched that um will know um of the the Callum Hawkins, um, the mar marathoner that collapsed um, with owning, I think, about a couple Ks to go in that event. So, so we'll talk about what happened there um, and, yeah, about Jess's experience on how she best adapted to that environment and, and how that all unfolded for her. Yep. Sounds great. 
All right, so just remember, if you have a question that you want answered on The Long Munch, feel free to hit us up on social media, be it Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, at The Long Munch. Um, you can also uh, leave us a review or subscribe through whichever podcasting platform you're using. That's uh, very helpful for us to get the message out and, um, you know, we get these fantastic guests on. We'd like to share that with as many people as we possibly can. So the, um, you know, the more people we can get involved with the podcast, the merrier. And also, if you just want to send us some feedback or suggestions for the podcast, what you're liking, what you're not liking, again, you can do that through the various social media channels as well. All right. Well, I think that's all we've got time for today, Steph. So we'll um, bid goodbye to everyone, and uh, we'll be back next week with our follow-up or chat with Jess Stenson. Awesome. Can't wait. Catch you later, guys.